I got to tell you something. Number one, the hotel that he ran, if I was a roach, I wouldn't stay in it. Because during spring break, I had to put units outside of that hotel, and we were in there for everything imaginable. That was Volusia County Sheriff Mike Chitwood describing the infamous Desert Inn, operated by convicted sex offender Dennis Devlin, who's in the middle of serving 15 years in federal prison for his outrageous crimes. That story is coming up on Sun Crime State. I'm Tony Holt, crime reporter with the Daytona Beach News Journal. Welcome to Sun Crime State, a weekly podcast that takes an in-depth look at Florida's biggest crime stories of the past and present. In this episode, I'll discuss the startling case of an apartment tenant in Orange County who was found working out inside the complex's gym completely naked. After that, I'll discuss the investigation, arrest, and conviction of Dennis Devlin, who authorities had considered one of the seediest hoteliers in Florida. His business, the Desert Inn, was notorious for its filth. He's now in prison, but the former Desert Inn is being transformed into something quite different. Among my special guests for that segment will be federal prosecutor Karen Gable. Coming up, the story of a prison inmate who prosecutors are hell-bent on sending back to death row for the third time. Prosecutors are trying again to put double murderer David Snellgrove on death row, and it appears they will have to wait another year before getting another crack at it. Snellgrove was convicted by a Flagler County jury nearly 16 years ago for the June 2000 slayings of his Palm Coast neighbors, 84-year-old Glenn Fowler and 79-year-old Vivian Fowler. He has been given the death penalty twice, but both sentences were overturned. During a hearing Friday, the judge presiding over the case set aside the weeks of February 11th and 18th of 2019 for Snellgrove's penalty phase trial. For the upcoming trial, unlike for the previous two, all 12 jurors must be unanimous in their recommendation for death in order for the judge to sentence him to die. A non-unanimous recommendation is what resulted in Snellgrove's most recent death sentence to be overturned. The Florida Supreme Court in 2016 held that a death sentence must be issued by a unanimous jury in order for it to be carried out. That meant Snellgrove's most recent death sentence recommendation, which was made by a majority of trial jurors, had to be overturned. Snellgrove, who was now 45 years old, was first sentenced to death in 2002, but the Supreme Court overturned that one on a technicality. Snellgrove fatally beat and stabbed his elderly victims while he burglarized their home to get money to support his drug habit. Snellgrove, at the time, lived across the street from his victims. He lived with his aunt and cousin on Bayside Drive in Palm Coast. The two families were friends, and it was Snellgrove's aunt who first realized something was amiss when she saw newspapers piling up on the Fowler's front stoop a couple days after the killings. Snellgrove murdered the couple and stole cash and jewelry from the house before going out to party later that night. His blood was found throughout the house, 
and on the corpse of one of the victims. Coming up, the story of a naked man on a stationary bike. An Orange County man was arrested after authorities say he was seen working out at his apartment complex's gym while stark naked. As reported by the Orlando Sentinel, a leasing consultant at the Andover Place Apartments in Southeast Orange was told that a nude man was using the gym around 10 a.m. Wednesday. She walked over to the gym and found 57-year-old Carrie Haynes nude and using every machine in the gym. The Sentinel reported that she promptly called a maintenance worker who arrived to find Haynes riding a stationary bicycle. He informed the suspect that police were on their way. Haynes left the gym and he wandered outside, still nude. When deputies showed up, according to the Sentinel article, they were waved over by a bystander who said some naked guy was lying in the grass, pleasuring himself. A deputy found Haynes, who was still in the middle of pleasuring himself, according to the Orange County Sheriff's Office. Haynes was handcuffed, allowed to go to his apartment to get dressed, and later was transported to the jail and booked on charges of exposure of sexual organs, along with disorderly conduct and indecent exposure. All of his charges were misdemeanors. His bail was set at $600. A landscaper who was interviewed by deputies said he saw Haynes wandering naked throughout the complex earlier that morning. Deputies said that landscaper also witnessed Haynes urinating in the community pool. Haynes is a tenant at Andover Place, but an employee told authorities that he was being evicted. Coming up, the story of the long-awaited arrest of a Daytona Beach hotelier, long rumored to have been a sexual deviant. Dennis Devlin was a child sexual predator, and he was a danger to the community, and in particular, a danger to children. That was federal prosecutor Karen Gable, who prosecuted Dennis Devlin, who in 2011 was sentenced to 15 years on charges of exploiting minors. Devlin had been dogged for close to 20 years by rumors that he was committing sex crimes within the confines of his beachside hotel, the Desert Inn. In February 2011, the FBI, the U.S. Attorney's Office, and the Daytona Beach Police Department worked together to hammer out a search warrant, get it signed, make the arrest, and obtain a conviction. Devlin was no longer a rumored pervert. He was a convicted one. He paid a 13-year-old boy to pose provocatively and perform sex acts in Devlin's private hotel studio, all while being photographed and video recorded. Devlin, who is now 64 years old, will not get out of prison until the age of 72. By the time the early 90s rolled around, Devlin was overseeing operations at the Desert Inn after his family had purchased the property at 918 North Atlantic Avenue. It was in an ideal part of town in a dense area on the beach side along State Road A1A. Built in the 1950s to much fanfare, the hotel was considered for a time a desirable place. It had a unique design and it overlooked the world's most famous beach. 
It was a major draw for conventions, proms, and inevitably, spring breakers. Over time, it became a den of impropriety. The upkeep was spotty at best, and the clientele was less than covetable. By the time Devlin's family took it over, it was already on the decline. Volusia County Sheriff Mike Chitwood was the Daytona Beach Police Chief for 10 years. Here he is describing to me the hotel's reputation. You know, the uh, the Desert Inn, for not only my time as the police chief in Daytona, but for years before, had always been considered a blight hotel in that, uh, in that neighborhood up there. Uh, you know, wild parties, loud music, unruly behavior. And over the years, I had always heard that there was some type of uh, um, child molestation or something was going on there that, that Dennis Devlin, you know, uh, there was a lot of young boys and young men going in and out of the hotel. And some of those young men may have been involved in some crimes that occurred in the neighborhood. During the early part of the decade, TripAdvisor ranked the Desert Inn as the third filthiest hotel in America. Here is News Journal business editor Clayton Park talking to me about the up-and-down history of the once impressive icon of Daytona. It was like one of America's dirtiest hotels. Uh, you know, and my understanding is this this hotel back in its heyday, uh, I believe it was built in the 50s, and but in, in its heyday in the 60s and, and I believe even early 70s, it was considered a crown jewel um, on the beach side. But Devlin turned it into his headquarters of homoeroticism. But the participants weren't always of legal age. By the time the feds caught up to Devlin in 2011, he had already successfully dodged prosecution time and again. But he wasn't always so lucky. In 1991, when he was 38 years old, he was charged with engaging in lewd acts with a 15-year-old boy in the hotel. He was convicted in 1995 in Volusia County Circuit Court and was sentenced to 22 months in prison. He admitted at the time that he had a sickness. He compared his sexual desires to alcoholism. In the long run, that conviction didn't stick. Devlin served his time, but in 2002, the victim in the case came forward alleging that he was manipulated by an overly aggressive lead investigator. The boy said he was promised a transfer out of a reform school for boys that had a reputation for administering physical abuse. The deal was, if he testified against Devlin, he'd get pulled out of there. A judge would later vacate the conviction. That meant Devlin wound up with a clean record. And it also meant he was no longer on probation. A condition of his probation was that he could no longer visit Daytona's beachside. Once that was dropped, Devlin made his comeback. Devlin got arrested several more times, but those cases never made it to trial. In 2004, he was charged with disorderly conduct when police and city officials saw a woman bearing her breasts during a wet t-shirt contest on the pool deck of his hotel. Nothing came of it, like all of his arrests back then. During the investigation of the case, we learned that Devlin had, since 1987, 
Devlin had been arrested at least six times for engaging in child sexual exploitation offenses. However, he had never been convicted of any of those offenses. There was even a case as far back as 1988 in which he was charged with 13 counts related to the exploitation of young boys. Those charges were filed in Ocean City, Maryland, but prosecutors there wound up dropping those charges. Not long after that 2004 incident on the pool deck of his hotel, Devlin hand-delivered a letter to then-Mayor Yvonne Scarlett Golden warning her to never step foot on his property again. She had no trouble obliging. It was a place lots of people purposely avoided. Devlin also delivered that letter to a city commissioner at the same time. Both the mayor and the commissioner had been on Devlin's property, and both of them said they saw the topless woman the same time as law enforcement. A news journal story at the time included a quote from an attorney with the First Amendment Foundation, who stated that the mayor and commissioner may have violated the government in the Sunshine Law by being at the same place at the same time. That played into Devlin's public persona, at least the one he wanted. That he was a crusader for civil liberties, and that he was a victim of an overreaching government. Chitwood, who was the Daytona Beach police chief for 10 years before he was elected Volusia County Sheriff, said he was warned about Devlin shortly after he was hired in 2006. When I landed there, you know, and I would go to neighborhood meetings, not, not only the, the loud music and the loud parties and his failure to adhere to any of the city codes, but the neighbors would talk about the young men going in and out of his, his room there, and, and they attributed a lot of the crime in the neighborhood, the drug dealing, the car breaks. They, all, they thought all that stuff was going into the hotel in the Devlin on top of they believed he had a, uh, uh, a fetish for young boys. On January 20th, 2011, Devlin was introduced to a 13-year-old boy. The person who introduced the boy to Devlin was 20-year-old Michael Emmon. Emmon told Devlin the age of the boy, and according to law enforcement, Devlin's eyes lit up immediately. He was excited to have a 13-year-old over at his hotel, and Devlin knew exactly what he wanted out of the teen. The 13-year-old, the first time he went there, he just posed naked. He got naked, and he took pictures of him in different, different positions and different parts of his body, and he gave him, I think, 60 bucks. And then he gave the co-defendant who recruited him and brought him there 80 bucks. And then a couple of days later, when, uh, when the 13-year-old goes back with the 18-year-old, he has them rub shaving cream on themselves. He has them uh, get into a jacuzzi and he photographs And then he has them uh, perform a sex act uh, on, on themselves. And he films all that. And then he gives them money again. Uh, I think, he, I think he, if I remember correctly, I think he even, at one point he has them uh, paddle one another naked with a, uh, with a ping pong paddle. And after, after it's all over, I think he gives the elder one $100 in cash and he gives the victim 80 in cash. Chitwood said Emmon knew the boy possibly from around the neighborhood. He also said investigators suspected that Emmon had a long history with Devlin. At one point, he was an underage boy that Devlin lusted over, and he probably paid him to do provocative things. As he got older, 
he turned him into a recruiter of more boys, offering him more money to incentivize him. It was shortly after that second visit that the 13-year-old boy told his grandmother what Devlin had done. Devlin's lucky streak was about to come to a halt. The grandmother didn't mess around. She went straight to the FBI and filed a complaint. At the end of January, or maybe in early February of 2011, the FBI obtained enough probable cause in order to obtain search warrants from a federal magistrate judge to search Devlin Suites at the Desert Inn. They executed the search warrants, and during the execution of the search, they found a number of the videos that the defendant had produced of the victim engaging in sexually explicit conduct hidden in the ceiling tiles of Devlin's suite. They also found um, a lot of child pornography. It was actually um, paper or photographs of child pornography in Devlin's suite as well as in his office at the Desert Inn. And they also found child pornography on his computer. Chitwood has a vivid memory of that search warrant. His agency assisted the FBI with everything. A total of more than 100 DVDs were seized during the raid, which occurred in early February 2011. The victim's grandmother went directly to the FBI. Here's what's going on. And the FBI then turned on and said, okay, we need your help. So we, along with the FBI, just did all of the interviews. We, along with the state attorney's office, prepared the search warrant, and then we and the FBI and their evidence collecting team executed the search warrant on February 2nd uh, at that at 900 North Atlantic. That move by the grandmother going to the FBI was crucial. Not only that, but much of the evidence that was uncovered made it all stick as a federal case. It just felt this time around that Devlin was not going to wiggle his way out of a conviction. Well, the the case was prosecuted federally because the defendant used facilities of interstate commerce, that is, his iPhone and other recording equipment, to produce the child pornography. So that is what gave the government the federal nexus, the federal jurisdiction, to prosecute the case federally. Chitwood was confident this case was going to result in justice being served. Charges weren't going to be dropped, and nothing was going to get overturned. For one thing, the case wasn't reliant solely on the word of the victim. Law enforcement had seized a lot of hardware containing a lot of incriminating evidence against Devlin, and it was all in his possession. Chitwood told a TV station at the time, quote, I know he has skated on this before, but with the evidence coming out, it's not going to happen again. The investigation was conducted with a great deal of speed. The offenses occurred January 20th and 22nd. Before the month was over, the grandmother reported it to the FBI. By February 3rd, Devlin and Emmon were arrested. On February 16th, Devlin's request for bail was denied. Both men pleaded guilty in April. Gable said federal cases that involve child victims are expected to move fast. With respect to cases of this type where we have information that 
there is ongoing abuse or children are at harm or anytime there's any violent crime, we, we call this a reactive case. Um, based on my experience as a prosecutor, the federal law enforcement agencies move incredibly swiftly. Um, they're truly amazing. So the FBI's work in this case is not unique at all. In August 2011, Emmon was sentenced to seven years in prison. He is scheduled to be released sometime this year. Devlin's sentencing was in July of that year, and he got 15 years. He's not even halfway done with his sentence. Before he was sentenced, he told the judge he was taking full responsibility for his actions. He insisted he acted alone when he took photos and videos of the teen and Emmon. He told the judge there was no network of pedophiles. After he serves his time, he will be on supervised probation for the remainder of his life, with sexual offender conditions that include polygraph tests and sex offender treatment. He was also required to pay $6,000 to his victim's family for the boy's therapy. Devlin's mother actually owned the Desert Inn. But due to the nature of the criminal case, the federal government snatched it from her, or at least gained control of it. It forced her to sell it. She got some money out of it, but so did the government. And now that property is about to complete a historic transformation, from eyesore to tourist attraction. The way Chitwood explained it to me, none of it would have been made possible without the Devlin family losing it as a result of the child exploitation case. It was a battle. I mean, these, these years have been battles because obviously the fact that he was he was uh, uh, creating, directing, disseminating child pornography is really what forces the change up there. Because under the forfeiture laws, uh, the federal forfeiture laws, the feds were allowed to seize that property, force the mother whose name was in the property to sell it, and that's that's how we get the Hard Rock developers in here. Uh, because of the federal forfeitures. You know, she was she sold it, and X number of dollars of the proceeds had to go to the federal government. And then she got X number of dollars to retire on. And then, you know, then, then she had to sell it. And once she sells it, I mean, this is what we attracted. We, attract, we attracted a top-notch developer, and here's what we got. The Desert Inn was sold for $6 million. Local law enforcement received a cut from a $400,000 payout which was part of the $1.5 million that the federal government received in the forfeiture. It turned out to be the largest child porn-related forfeiture in U.S. history. But now, the Desert Inn is history. The hotel that once seemed to drag down Daytona's beachfront is being replaced by a hotel that is expected to catapult it to new heights. The new Hard Rock Daytona is expected to be unveiled at the end of the month. Clayton Park explained to me the long road to the finish line. Summit Hospitality Management Group, which owns a number of other hotels in our area, they acquired it, and then their initial plan was to convert it into a four-star Weston hotel. Weston said that that the condition for them would be that that there would have to be no motor vehicles allowed on the on the section of beach behind the hotel Uh, and that was kind of a controversial thing for some reason uh, that whole thing got delayed i think the um, 
renovation work was far more extensive than originally anticipated. I believe that they had to, to gut it all the way down to the, um, the concrete and completely rebuild it. Early last year, uh, Summit uh, announced that they had switched hotel flags and they were now going to become a hard rock um, hotel. And, and this is after uh, another developer had unsuccessfully tried to develop a hard rock hotel condominium project a couple miles to the south. And my understanding is that the big problem for them was the condo portion of the project. So it was kind of good, a, a good timing for Summit and for Hard Rock because Hard Rock was interested in the area, so they made the switch. Hard Rock has specific standards to remain consistent with its brand. Clayton told me the Volusia County Council granted an extension until the end of the month. Summit has to provide proof that it has received certification from Hard Rock to open. Summit has assured everyone it plans to meet that deadline, even though there is still some landscaping and construction work left to be done on the property. Here is Clayton Park talking about the kind of features the new Hard Rock will offer its guests. As much of a, a big plus for our area that it would have been if we got the Weston, uh, again, a four-star uh, brand, um, I think that there's so much more buzz that's being generated by the Hard Rock brand, partly because of the whole entertainment celebrity component. Because Hard Rock hotels, they not only have uh, you know nice accommodations uh, like uh, you would expect from a four-star hotel, but they've also got things like live entertainment. Um, th- this this Hard Rock hotel is going to have a, a grand ballroom. They're going to have a restaurant. They're going to have a coffee shop. They're going to have an, a third level. Um, indoor-outdoor restaurant, bar, all of those, we're told, all of those are going to have entertainment. So it's going to be something where you go, anytime you go, you're going to be able to have live entertainment in the rooms. You'll have the option of either um, borrowing an electric guitar and an amp and to be able to play in your room through headphones so it won't bother other other, uh, guests. Or, or, being able to use a, a record turntable and, and play records in your in your room or listen to a, uh, a selected playlist um, that they uh, that's specific for Daytona. A beachside revitalization has long been hoped for in Daytona Beach. A lot of hopes are being pinned on the Hard Rock to get one started. Uh, there's hope that this is going to to be key to to revitalizing the beachside area and and um, again uh, that maybe that would have a ripple effect. Thank you for listening. Tune in next week when I will discuss one of Florida's highest profile cold cases, the 1993 murder of 12 year old Jennifer Odom, who was abducted at her bus stop in Pasco County. She was found dead six days later in an orange grove in neighboring Hernando County. Among my special guests next week will be Hernando County Sheriff Al Nienheis and cold case investigator George Lloydgren. You won't want to miss that. Join us then. You can find Tony on Twitter at Tony Crime Writer or email him at 
tony.holt at news-jrnl.com. Be sure to rate us on iTunes. Sutton Crime State is recorded by Tony Holt and produced by Chris Bridges for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Thank you.